This morning, we can't leave and bookend a series like Wholehearted Living without addressing uh, the issue of when uh, times with the Lord are not always raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens and the uh, amazing, waxing, eloquent words of Julie Andrews, the great theologian of our time. Sometimes life does not work. And that's a reality. Sometimes life, the bottom falls out of it. It hits the fan. Things become uh, absolutely destroyed in our lives sometimes. Relationships, uh, occupational dreams, uh, what have you. And a myriad of things in our, in our soul and situation can just kind of self-destruct at times. And we're left with shatteredness and figuring out how we ought to live with the Lord. What does this mean? And so this morning, we're going to unpack how to live with the Lord and how to love him well in trials and suffering and seasons of hardship. What a way to start the morning. I probably just let the air out of the room right out of the gate, but that's all right. We're going to have a sweet morning. Uh, I want to title this morning's message, Love in the Valley. Love in the Valley. Loving God in seasons of trial and suffering. And let's pause. Let's bring our hearts before the Lord as we always do. And let's orient ourselves into the greater reality that is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And us being caught up into the divine dance and relationship with them. Let's quiet ourselves. Posture our hearts. And our prayer in this moment of silence is the prayer of Samuel. Here I am, Lord. Your servant is listening. Abba, we settle ourselves this morning, and we commit ourselves to following the voice of the Good Shepherd. Jesus, you said that the voice of a stranger, your people, your sheep, won't follow. And we ask that the voice of the stranger in our lives, this weekend, this week, this month, this season, maybe, would you shut the mouth of the accuser? Would you shut the mouth of the clamorer, the noise and dust and swirl of noise in our life, accusing, condemnation, all these different things that are the voice of the clamorous stranger, would you shut him up this morning? And we pray that in its place, good shepherd, would you speak to us? Would you be the one who makes us lie down in green pastures? And leads us beside still and quiet waters. And in that process restores our soul. And leads us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Would you do it this morning? We ask that as we come up under the scriptures. And as we study them. And as we discuss them together. We ask good shepherd that you would speak to us in the process. We pray that your name would be put on full display. And uh, Holy Spirit you would speak. And you would plant seed, and you would cause us and provoke us to deeper kingdom living as you see fit. 
We commit ourselves to you this morning and we pray your grace and your life and your joy and your peace and just the goodness of your presence and the goodness of a life with you. May it be manifest and tangibly expressed this morning in our midst. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the people of God, a.k.a. the young adults said, amen. Amen. Uh, I'm convinced that one of the greatest songs in history is Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. How many of you know that song? Have heard it before? I heard there was a secret chord that David played and he pleased the Lord. Sing it. You don't really care for music, do you? That's 6-8, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fallen. Yeah, sing it out. The baffled king composing hallelujah. Let's just sing through that chorus. Hallelujah. Yeah. Hallelujah. You guys are on it. Yeah, I like it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Wow, that got a lot more traction than I expected it would. You guys. Maybe we just have a service where we do that. Mm. It is the world, one of the world's best songs, and it really has made a mark on American music at large. Been around for decades. And I remember the first time I heard that song, Hallelujah, I was in sixth grade, and YouTube was fresh on the scene. And I hopped on, and somehow I found Jeff Buckley's rendition of Hallelujah, and I was just enthralled. Oh my gosh, this song is unreal. And for those of us who know the song, there's the great crescendo in the song where the first stanza is about David. And then the second stanza is about this like Samsonite struggle with Delilah. And in talking about David and Samson, he kind of draws out the human condition and the struggles associated in our lives. And then he crescendos into the great stanza, I've seen your flag on the marble arch, and love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. Oh my gosh, what language, what beauty. And what strikes me about this song and that stanza is that it gives language to sometimes the journey of our faith. It gives language to the feelings of our soul, the coldness, the brokenness, the marred, the scarred, the absolute destitute, yet present. Hallelujah. Hi, Rush. Love you, buddy. And I think this language is provoking to us and it's challenging to us and it draws something out of us because there's something in each and every one of us that can so relate to this broken hallelujah idea. This idea that we are absolutely shattered in some seasons and yet uh, a hallelujah must be wrenched from our lips that allegiance to Jesus and following Jesus on the journey of life at times means a cold and a broken hallelujah. This is the language of our faith. Uh, And, you know, this language is not foreign in Scripture either. 
In fact, Scripture is saturated with uh, phrases and chapters and passages where it speaks to the brokenness of the human condition at times. And I think one of the most beautiful uh, uh, passages and expressions in Scripture of the brokenness of the human situation at times and the, the fallenness of the journey that we all walk through from time to time is found in Psalm 84, and it's the language of the Valley of Baca. And it says this, Blessed are those who tr- whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The psalmist is speaking the language of pilgrimage. And Psalm 84, the beginning of it, talks about the saint who lives in the house of the Lord, the Levite, the Israelite who is day and night offering sacrifices to God and how that is, in fact, a blessed estate. But then he shifts gears and he begins talking about the pilgrim, the one in whom life with the Lord is journey and life with the Lord is process. And life with the Lord has, an, in and of itself, innate sense of uh, difference and journeying and longevity and how it's this ongoing walk up to the temple, to Jerusalem, to meet with the presence of God. And in it, there's a myriad of different seasons. There's a myriad of different stops along the journey. But then the psalmist really hones in on this one specific location on the journey of pilgrimage. And he says, they come to the valley of Baca. And the Hebrew translation of this is literally the valley of weeping. The Valley of Baca was a place in the journey and the pilgrimage to the temple that was uh, notoriously known for its deserts and its wastelands. It was a place that was known for its dryness and its starkness and actually its danger. It was a place where the pilgrim up until this point had his or her eyes set on the temple, set on communion with God, set to Jerusalem. And they journeyed, and they pilgrimed, and they walked, and then they got to the valley of Baca, and then it was in this dryness and this decimation and this wasteland that they started to ask the questions, is this journey worth it? Is this pilgrimage to the temple to meet with the presence of God actually worth it? It's where fatigue settled in. It's where dryness settled in. It's where frustration settled in. It was the place of danger. It was the place of struggle. It was the place of strain. It was the place where the coldness and the brokenness of the hallelujah was wrenched from their lips. Does this sound familiar? I think this sounds an awful lot like some of the seasons in our lives that we walk through where up until maybe a certain point we're feeling good and we feel like we have some traction with the Lord and we feel like we're really making progress in our careers and we're in this life-giving relationship and, and life is just working. And then all of a sudden, it's not. And we enter into this wasteland of brokenness, be it uh, your parents going through a divorce, be it through uh, an exciting opportunity that just falls through the cracks, be it through a breakup Sometimes as silly as we make breakups, actually the very painful experience that is giving trust over to someone and then having that trust be shattered. 
It's the cold and it's the broken. Hallelujah. Lord, I choose to trust you in the valley of Baca. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? I think, um, you know, as we look at the Psalms, and as we look at this journey of faith that the Valley of Baca really represents, I think that the Valley of Weeping, uh, we can say then, is a familiar and well-traveled road of the soul. I think it's a place that we all can very much resonate with. I think it's a place that the second I started talking about brokenness, each and every one of us have a story. Each and every one of us have skin in the game when it comes to hurts. Each and every one of us have a dog in the fight when it comes to having a history of wounding and having a history of struggle and having a history of strain, be it a sin issue, be it anything, you name it. It's a well-worn and well-traveled and familiar journey of the soul that I think we all resonate with. And you know, this idea and this concept, being well-worn and being familiar, I think there's consolation and there's comfort in that. And I think that there's a, a sense of... Uh, settledness, when we really come to grips with the fact that our suffering, though unique and exclusive to us, uh, in in the specificity of it, it is not exclusive uh, in the presence of it. We all wrestle with, with suffering. We all walk through trials. We all, from time to time, walk through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping. And so there's a certain sense of comfort when we say, yeah, okay, we all wrestle with that. We all walk through these seasons. Let's get that on the table. And yet still there are challenges and uh, struggles associated with these kinds of seasons. And that's where I want to turn our first discussion question this morning uh, is the temptations and the struggles that we often face. And the question is this, what kinds of temptations and struggles do we often face when we enter into the valley in life? Talk about those temptations, talk about those struggles, and struggle should be plural, not singular. Sorry, English majors. Get over it. God bless you guys as you discuss. Ready, go. All right. Go ahead and wrap those discussions up. All right, let's jump back in here. All right, so let's call a spade a spade. Suffering exists, okay? We're not going to act like it doesn't. Trials and hardships and afflictions exist. Uh, That's kind of just the way it goes. That's the nature of our reality. But I think the way that we maneuver these seasons of suffering, and especially the ways that we understand suffering— really as a, as a greater concept, I think informs the way that we're able to walk through it and equips us to really be able to endure and persevere the specific trials that we face in our lives. And you know, I, I fully recognize there may be some and hopefully many of us in here this morning that life is working and things are going well and life is feeling good and you're getting some traction in a number of different areas. But I also very much recognize that there are probably a lot of us where there's that one area in our life that's just the thorn, the jab, that thing that gives us perpetual angst and perpetual fear and even perpetual pain, physically, emotionally, mentally, whatever it is. 
But I think the way that we view, understand, that we view suffering and understand it really informs the way that we're able to walk through it. And historically speaking, um, the, the church has viewed suffering in a number of different ways. And I think there's three main ones that I want to touch on this morning. Uh, ways that, that the people of God throughout the centuries have tried to put words to and explain the idea of suffering. The first one I would say is this, that uh, suffering is um, an affliction that should be exercised by faith. Something that is just not the way it should be, that suffering is an evil that suffering is that which we need to just purge out of our system. And let me say very clearly, that is what suffering is. Suffering is an evil. Anything that goes sideways in our life that really deals some heavy damage to us, I think that's not the way it should be because we were destined from the beginning and the eternity of the life of the world to come. Our destiny is life with peace, life with equilibrium, life with the Lord that makes sense. Revelation gives language to he'd wipe every tear from their eye. You know, he'd, pur- he'd purge us of all sense of suffering. That's, that's just the way that the kingdom reality is, and yet we live in this dissonance and this life that is the now and the not yet of the kingdom. But at the same time, I think that if we overemphasize this, then we so look to the wrongness of the trials and the wrongness of the suffering, and it can become blind to and really develop a duplicity of soul to the reality that is and the reality that we think and have the firm conviction should be. And I think if we focus too much on the affliction portion of it, then suffering just becomes this thing that we need to get out of our system, cleanse, cleanse, rid ourselves of as quickly as possible. And we may not concede to the reality that there may be something at work in this season. That there may, in fact, be something to this suffering, this thing that is pain, this thing that is trial, that may actually be working for the good of my life. Um, a second way that the church has, has tried to come to grips with and understand suffering is that it's an allowance of God in his great sovereignty. And again, I think when we look at this, um, all of us hopefully would say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, in, in some way, shape, or form, suffering is uh, an allowance of God. That can't be the case. We hold to the notion that God is an omnipotent God, meaning that, that we believe not a single molecule in the entire cosmos exists outside of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet again, there's dissonance. How do we square that? And we're not going to be talking about that right now. But this idea that, that suffering is primarily an allowance of God. And we see this in Romans 8.28. He makes what? All things work for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. That there is some measure of sovereignty that the Lord allows suffering and pain and trial in our life. And again, though there's a measure of truth to this, I think that really emphasizing this can take the soul and the humanity out of suffering and out of the very real trials that we face. And it becomes this like bludgeoning tool that God just kind of uses to whip us into shape. And it takes the humanity out of it. And if we're really not careful, then we become these dogmatists who are sitting with broken and sorrowful people and say, well, don't you worry. God's going to make all things work together for the good. Shut up. 
suffering people need presence, okay? Suffering people need to sit and need to grieve and need to mourn, and they do not need answers in that moment. And by the way, disclaimer and side note, everything we're talking about now, I am not prescribing that we sit with people on their sick beds and, hey, don't worry. Historically speaking, the church, you know, has viewed that. No. These are things that we catalog for ourselves and live in and use and communicate and articulate when the time is right. But when there is truly a suffering soul among us, people of God, please listen. That is not the time to lay down dogmatics. That is not the time to lay down absolutes. That's not the time to draw a line in the sand and say, well, maybe you should have enough faith, bro. Well, maybe if you believe this passage, I have seen so many people wounded by loving, God-fearing Um, kind-hearted people that think they're really doing the best thing they possibly can be in the situation. And yet there's wounding that happens when we uh, really take these moments of suffering souls and wounded people and turn it into a platform for us to preach dogmatics. That is not what this is about. And so we need to be careful not to overemphasize this sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. Well, it's going to work out for the good. And yes, but... Could there be more at work here? And the third concession and confession of the church really takes into account, I think, both of these. And that is that suffering is an anvil upon which our devotion is fashioned and found genuine. And I think when we have all three of these things and we hold them in balance, I think we have a really robust and mature view of what suffering is and the role that it plays in our lives. And I think that it keeps us from drifting over to the excessive edges, either of theology or methodology with these things. But especially the third one, it's an anvil upon which our devotion is fashioned and found genuine. I feel that and and really see that this aligns with the greater portion of Scripture at large, both the Old and the New Testament. We see this in a number of ways, specifically in the epistles. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 explicitly lays this out when he says this, In this you rejoice. That is your salvation. Peter's explicating the salvation and the life of the world to come and the joy that we have as believers. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And he doesn't say, well, because God is sovereign and he's going to make all things work. And he doesn't say, well, just have enough faith and banish that thing and exercise that out of your system. But he says, you're grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Peter speaking. Paul, uh, in Romans 5, 1 to 5, says it this way. Very similar idea. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Praise God for access. Thank you for Jesus, our great high priest that allows us access and entrance into the throne room of God. Access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, 
But we actually have the audacity to rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, trials are the anvil of grace. Through them and upon them, our loving Father lovingly purges us of self-love and fashions us into people with clean hands, pure hearts, and right spirits. Trials are that which fashion us. Trials are that which, uh, however we make uh, justification for it, however we can square it away, both philosophically and theologically, again, we're not doing that now. But trials, biblically speaking, are these anvils of grace where our loving Father holds the hammer. And in his goodness and in his love and in his omniscience and greatness of wisdom, where his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways, he is the one that forms and fashions us and cleanses and purges us of our idols And cleanses us of anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Cleanses us against competing kingdoms and overthrows those in our lives that sets themselves up against God. He cleanses us and purges us. These are anvils of grace. And you know, this has been the testimony of the scriptures and the church really since the beginning. That again, though it's difficult to square and we can get into all these different conversations, trials and suffering just have this way of purifying us. This way of causing us to become more like the Christ whom we serve. It causes us to refine our devotion and prove actually our genuineness of faith. And I think when we really begin to catch a glimpse of this, we begin to see what Psalm 84 is talking about within the New Testament framework, that these are the springs in the desert. This consolation of refining, this consolation of love, this consolation of development, and and this genuineness of our faith being crystallized and brought to full expression. These are the streams in the valley of Baca. These are the consolations amidst the desolations of our lives where we can point to and say, somehow and in some way, and I can't really square philosophically what this looks like, I know that I'm a better person because of that which I've walked through. I know that there's been a refining quality to the genuineness of my faith because of this valley that I've walked through. And so to this, I want to kick it back to the tables to process and to talk about together. How does thinking of trial as the anvil of grace challenge or encourage you in your view of suffering? Ready? Go. Okay. Go ahead and wrap those up. I know when it comes to this topic, there's a lot here, is there not? I mean, wow. There is a lot to wrestle with. There is a lot to nuance. Um, There is a lot to really square when it comes to the narrative of Scripture and our inner conviction of what we innately know to be that which is right and that which is wrong. Not decisions or morality, but just uh, the substance of 
good, the substance of who the Father is and who the Son is and who the Holy Spirit is, and yet the nature of the situation or reality in which we live. Um, you know, and I think all of this may be helpful in kind of reframing uh, this thing that is suffering and trials that we walk through in life, but there's really only one supreme source of consolation and encouragement that we can draw from when it comes to walking through the valley of Baca, uh, going into the valley of weeping that lifts us and gives us hope and gives us a durability in those seasons to really cling to Christ and to get through those seasons faithfully. And that is looking unto Jesus, the suffering servant and the faithful son, who in his suffering was faithful, and he serves as the model in this regard. And then talking about faithfulness and trial, and specifically along the lines of sin, which is kind of what we're talking about, but there's a greater general reality. Uh, we see the writer of Hebrews encourages us to do this exact thing. Many of us know this passage of Scripture, but Hebrews chapter 12, 1 to 3, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's kick back. Let's chill. Just write it out. You do you, I'll do me. No. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Okay, so the sin. But verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is the kicker. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Look to Jesus is what this writer of Hebrews is saying, the anonymous writer. He or she is saying that when we face trials, when we are broken, when we enter the valley of weeping, when we're succumbed by sin, and when we fall into whatever the uh, darkness of life at times has to offer, we look up to Jesus, who is the author, the perfecter, and the finisher of our faith. And then he lays out, this is how he suffered for us. For the joy set before him, he got through the suffering by looking at the joy by considering the Father, by considering us. And so in this way, I would say that Christ is the supreme model of how to love, endure, and suffer well. And I think a lot of us can get down with one and two. Love well, absolutely. Endure well, absolutely. Suffer well. That doesn't sit well with our Protestant and charismatic soul, does it? Suffering well. And I fully recognize that this may be a controversial idea, but, you know, uh, for centuries, Christian writers, uh, pastors, scholars have pointed out that Christ models for us how we suffer well. But how is this not the case when you really think about it? This God-man who in the dusk of Gethsemane, we see him absolutely overwhelmed by the interior desolations of his soul and mind. We see him sweating drops of blood. We see him pleading with his father, if this be possible, take this cup from my lips. But the concession, not my will, 
but yours be done. And then we see past the dusk of uh, Gethsemane, he enters into the darkness of Calvary. And for our sake and for the obedience to the Father and for the love of the people whom he was ransoming and reconciling, he takes on the scourges and the nails and the cross and exemplifies how we are to obey the Father. I say yes. Regardless of what tomorrow looks like, I say yes. Regardless of the trials that may, I may fall into, regardless of the persecution I may face, I say yes. He models for us how to love well, how to endure well, and how to suffer well. And so I think the invitation this morning, all of this, taking into account what suffering is, the role it plays in our life, the the exemplary model that is Jesus Christ. I think the invitation is summed up so well in the words of St. Francis de Sales, who has become a good friend here at New Life Young Adults. Uh, He says it this way, love him well. In the retreats which you make to pray and to adore, Love him when you receive him in holy communion. Love him when your heart is inundated with uh, with his holy consolations. But above all, love him when you meet with trials, aridities, and tribulations. For thus he loved you in paradise. Uh, But he testified more love in your regard amid the scourges, the nails, the thorns, and the darkness of Calvary. You ought, in consideration of these things, to receive sweetly and patiently the ennuis that befall you and bear them for the love of him who only permits them for your good. People of God, love him well. Love him. Maintain devotion. Love him well in the trials. Love him well in the hardships. Love him well in the suffering. Uh, love him just as the Lord substantiated our dev- his devotion for us upon Calvary. So let us substantiate our devotion and love and adoration and fidelity to him through the trials that we face. Let us be the people of God who as scripture beckons us into to love him in the valley of weeping to love our God, Lord and King, in the valley of Baca. Amen. So Father and Son and Holy Spirit, would you do it in us? Would you make us a people marked by endurance, marked by patience, marked by devotion? And whether or not we can justify this idea of suffering philosophically, theologically, whatever. I don't even know if who's wired that way. But God, regardless of how our minds can or cannot wrap itself around this idea of suffering, let our souls be intertwined with you in the sufferings that we walk through. As we enter the Valley of Baca, let that be a season where we enter onto the anvil of grace where you purge us of our self-love, purge us of our pride, purge us of our white-knuckled independence, and allow us to be a people who are consecrated, set aside, and led in the way everlasting. Do it in us, we pray. And people of God, I pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you this week. I pray that he would make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace and give you grace and give you joy and give you endurance. And may you be salt and light and a sweet-smelling fragrance of the love and nature of Jesus Christ upon the earth.
And let the kingdom of God be put on full display this week in the specificity of our lives and relationships and circumstances. Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everybody said, Amen.